Welcome to Christian Life Church Podcast. Please subscribe to our channel. I've waited a, a number of weeks to bring this message to you. As you know, we were walking through um, a series on spiritual disciplines, and um, it feels pertinent right now to, to kind of offer this to you for your consideration and, and your prayer. We're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 25, so if you have a Bible with you, why don't you turn to Matthew 25 just in readiness for that. And... Um, What we're finding in both uh, chapters 24 and 25 of the book of Matthew here is that Jesus is actually having one conversation. Though for us it's been split into chapters, it's actually one conversation. And I think it's a conversation for us as a Christian community that we really do need to have right now. It's a conversation that really... um, for many, many reasons, is pertinent to the hour in which we're living in our world. Because I don't know if you've noticed, but it seems to me that we're moving closer and closer to the return of Jesus Christ. Has anybody witnessed that? Um, Some things that are very unusual are happening in our world. Um, Let me just highlight some of them to you. Uh, on, On the one hand, there's an extended and more extensive sense of unrighteousness and um, ungodliness and all kinds of expressions of that seem to be consistently increasing in, in their uh, capacity. And, and I don't know about you, but when you think of how far things have moved and shifted in your life, and my life, as you know, is a fairly extensive one, 62 years of age, I look back and I think there are things now that people are celebrating and permissioning and promoting that actually in my childhood would never, ever have come to pass. You would never have had those conversations. And uh, there's this wonderful thing in our world called new tolerance. And new tolerance is a tolerance and acceptance that's far more profoundly sinister than perhaps you realize it because while we should be tolerant and accepting of one another and particularly uh, the diversities of how people choose to live their lives or feel they must lead their lives, we must be very careful that in embracing everything and sorry everyone that we don't embrace everything. We have to discern. We have to be very discerning in this hour. And um, I've noticed over these years that I've been alive that the world has dramatically changed. And I don't know about you, but I struggle sometimes to um, keep up with that. I struggle sometimes to understand how certain things are changing and transforming. So there was a time in society where we were encouraged to accept everyone. And that's right. That's a godly and glorious posture of heart to have because we are all equal. We are all equal. It doesn't matter to God, you know, um, what we think makes us different. What matters to God is that we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. We are all equal. That's one of the most wonderful things about the church. I think it reflects every tribe, nation, and tongue gathered together here on earth is a reflection of what happens in heaven. And God values all of us equally. Someone say amen to me. Give me a bit of encouragement. Okay, that may be not been your life experience or maybe you've had some alternative realities but that's the reality of God's postured heart towards the people of the earth everyone is loved by him for God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son that he or she whoever soever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life we come today as as a wonderful group of people from different backgrounds to a God who is is permanently and consistently the God of love and we celebrate that and we enjoy that but something has happened in our world that you need to be aware of, that it's not enough anymore just to be accepting of everyone. If we're not celebrating everything, we are considered to be bigoted or, or religious or whatever it is. And so it shifted away from just acceptance to celebration. And it was such a subtle shift. So now in society, if you don't celebrate certain choices people make or certain ways that people live, then you are and can be, and maybe in time we'll see more of this, I think we will, you can be legally prosecuted for what is termed as either bullying or discrimination. The the, the world in which we're living in has gone crazy. So, you know, it's not not no longer permissible for you to have your set of values and me to have mine. I must have yours. And if I don't have yours, then I'm the person with the problem. I'm the person that needs to be legally taught a lesson. And on the streets of our cities and towns and villages across this nation, people, ministers, uh, evangelists are being arrested because they are saying, certain certain things from the scriptures that actually contradict some of that thinking. They're saying that Jesus is the only way 
to, Christ, to salvation. Now, all of us in this room would agree with that, but actually you say that in a context where people think there are multiple ways, then you have a problem. And, and while we have allowed and maybe permissioned all of those things to happen, we must be very, very clear in our minds that some things just are not from heaven. They just don't come from God. And we need, if I prayed this any more than I have been praying recently, I'm praying for the church, I'm praying for myself, I'm praying for the, the extended church in the nation. We really need the gift of discernment. And more importantly for me, as I think that through, that gift which is given to the body of Christ is not given to us to understand what the enemy might be doing in our world. I know if I asked people in this room, I've said this a few times to you over my time with you, what is the devil up to in your life? You'd have a list. You know, he's trying to do this, he's trying to destroy that. And what's really interesting is if I ask the same question from a different point of view, what is God doing in your life? Some of you will go, Now that tells me something. It's an alarming thing whenever I know what the devil's doing more than I know what Jesus is doing in my life. Don't you think? And the gift of discernment, I think, has been misunderstood and we've used it to discern what the enemy is doing. Actually, it was given to the body of Christ to discern what the Spirit is doing. Let he who has ears hear what the Spirit is saying. And those ears... Our inner ears have been affected and I think in many ways um, infected by what we have allowed, which is the culture of our world. And so it's difficult now for the church sometimes to discern what God is doing because we have been in many ways conditioned by what's happening in the world. And so it comes to this point, and it's a difficult one to talk about, but it's true, that some things the Word of God says are true are no longer up for debate. You know, I was chatting with somebody recently and they were telling me this story about a church who had sought to be benevolent towards all kinds of people, which is the right thing to do. And in that benevolence, they have now moved away from benevolence to a place of celebration and they're celebrating all kinds of sexual nuances. In fact, some of those individuals are on the leadership teams of that particular church. Now, that's not a phenomenon that's new. As you look across the world, you will see that over and over and over again, We are, because of culture, adjusting what we consider to be true according to what the general populist decision of what is or isn't true happens to be. And and that has shifted dramatically in 10 years. That has shifted dramatically. Now, the alternative wasn't good, which was judgment. That was wrong. But if we are not careful, in 10 years' time, the body of Christ, the kingdom of God, the church will no longer have a confidence in what the scriptures say because society has begun to shape how we think and how we act and how we interact with one another. And yet God has given us the gift of discernment. And I think that discernment has been redirected to finding out what the enemy might be doing in our world and not given the right opportunity to be conditioned by understanding what the Holy Spirit is doing in our world. Now, let me talk to you about that. God is moving powerfully in our world. (sighs) Powerfully. In just about every context you can think of, in just about every continent you can identify, there is a move of the Holy Spirit where tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So we have unprecedented evil and we have unparalyzed blessing. These are the days that was spoken about from the prophet Joel and echoed in the book of Acts where God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Acts chapter 2. The promise is that God will come to his world and bring life and freedom and fullness and joy and hope to humanity. Amen. It recognized that in that uh, Acts chapter 2 passage says there will be like this wonderful sense of partnership between young people and old people. Your old men will receive visions and your young men, no it's the other way around, your young men will receive visions and your old men will dream dreams. You know God is saying upon my flesh both male and female generationally I will pour out my spirit. 
And so in stark contrast to the decay of moral fiber in our society, there's this light that's beginning to emerge, this wonderful sense that God is moving in the nations. And I have a friend, he's an itinerant evangelist, he travels all over the world, and recently I was dialoguing with him on Facebook, and he testified that he had never seen the numbers of people come to faith in Jesus Christ that he's seeing in his crusades currently. God is moving powerfully. You may want to tell yourself that sometimes because it doesn't look like you believe it, but God is moving powerfully. I never get disheartened by stories of revival in other places because I think if God can move over there, he can move here. And my prayer in these days is, God, do it again. Do it here. Why not here? Would it be awesome if this city became, instead of the second city, the first city to become fully alive to the truth and reality of Jesus Christ? Do you ever dream God's dreams for this city? That's why you're here, actually, to dream them and to carry them out. God has a dream for Birmingham. He longs to pour out his spirit on Birmingham. Now, I know you think it's going to happen in particular ways. We're all going to learn that God has his own way. But actually, God is moving in this city powerfully. There are more leaders gathering to pray together, anticipating this incredible sense that God is about to birth something wonderful in our city. Amen, amen, and amen, and amen, and amen, and amen. And thank God that we're here for such a time as this. Thank God that we're living here and that our eyes will see, our eyes will see the glory of God here on the streets of Birmingham. I have a dream. That dream is not just to have a great church. It's, it's something that I felt God say to me about 10 years ago. I don't just want a great church. It's great to have a great church. And we are becoming a church, I think, that has some form of greatness attached to it. But greatness is not numerical growth. Greatness is the power of the Holy Spirit. Greatness is people living committed and devoted lives to Jesus. You can have a crowd. You can have tons of people gathered, but they're not necessarily carrying the presence and the power of God. And I'm, I'm so old, I don't really care too much about crowds, but I love it when God's people catch fire. I love it when hearts get ignited. Dimitri, I love it when hearts get enlightened by God. I love the power of the Holy Spirit in our young people's lives. I love that Jody goes down on her knees and worships Jesus when you're all looking there like you've had a wet Wednesday in Scarborough. I love it. I love it. I love it that people are bold because the Spirit emboldens them to live outside of the parameters of what people expect. Oh, Jesus. So we're living in these incredible days. Turn to someone and say, it's not wrong, you know. Okay. The only reason I ask you to do that is to wake up the person that's sleeping next to you. It's not wrong, you know. In our greatest hour of crisis, he will come. And he will come visibly and tangibly and gloriously. He will pour out his spirit as a preamble to that coming to such a level that we will be shocked and surprised at what God can do. You and I right now, by the power of the spirit, are being made ready to contain the harvest that he wants to bring. There are people who are going to come to faith in your life and you will be shocked that God saved them. And you will not be the one speaking to them. God will visit them in dreams and visions. They will have revelations of who he is. When we were in Bristol, a young lady came one Sunday to the church. She came from a Muslim background and she said, waiting, bubbling over with this, this desire to speak to the minister. She said, who's Jesus? Who is Jesus? And I said, why are you asking? Last night, she said, last night, my son who has cerebral palsy was downstairs every night. He doesn't sleep. And, and I thought it was just another night. And I go downstairs and this boy whose body was kind of distorted by his condition is standing, worshipping like this in the front room. Jesus met with this young man. And so she starts seeing this light coming from him and she falls to her knees and she says, who is this that does this? And he says, my name is Jesus. You see, we think that God is limited to our conversations with people. Our God is moving in power throughout the nations. My question is, will you partner with him? Will you partner with him to see his kingdom come?
So Jesus speaking to this generation, a generation that's been prepared for his return in Matthew 25, writes three, four parables that in many ways are about one thing, and that one thing is being alert, being switched on, being alert. Now, if you've come from a very difficult background, you will have a condition called hypervigilance. Often if the world has not been a safe place for you, you'll be able to read a room instantly. I mean, we, we were raised in show business, and sometimes because of some of the nuances of that, we could tell, I could tell, my family could tell, that if you walked into a room, a fight was about to break out. You could pick up from the atmosphere there was tension. For the most part, most people in that room did not even see that or think that or, or have any understanding of that. But that hypervigilance came and it came because at times we had been affected by other things that people had done. And so when you have had those kind of situations in your life, you will become hypervigilant. Church, I want to tell you a day is coming and it's upon us now where the church needs to be hypervigilant. And I'm not talking about what the enemy's doing. We need to get our eyes cleared to see what the Lord is doing. The Lord is mighty in power. The Lord is here in his demonstration of power. The Lord is good and his love endures forever. The Lord is the lion of the tribe of Judah. The Lord is moving amongst his people. We need our eyes to become acclimatized. God, give us eyes to see what your spirit is doing. Now, these particular parables, we're going to read in a minute from Matthew 25. We're going to read from verse 1 downwards. But these particular parables are spoken with a particular group of people in mind. And that's not just the church, the general church, people being made aware of the return of Jesus. But Jesus is identifying and speaking directly to a bunch of people that would be, for our benefit, called leaders. Can I talk to this for a minute? I have watched over the last five, maybe ten years, ministries of huge magnitude and impact falling. And you have to ask the question, don't you? What's happening? Is the devil running riot in the body of Christ? Is it just a hype of a bunch of people seeking to expose the weaknesses? In those who are in leadership, but we hear terms like this, toxic leadership, narcissistic leadership, angry leadership. You know, as we look across and I see some of these things and have seen some of these things in my own experiences in life, we can see that leaders either make or break a situation. It's true to say that if you strike the shepherd, then the sheep will scatter. And that's a metaphor, not just for people leaving the kingdom of God. It's a metaphor for affecting people who stay in the kingdom of God. So when a leader has a default or a brokenness or is paralyzed or is in sin or is in error, you better bet your thousand dollar bet that that's going to affect the people who are sitting in the congregations listening to what that person is saying. And God, for whatever reasons, is shaking the tree and exposing some things that have been hidden in church for a long time. Have you noticed that? Talk to me, please. Have you noticed that? Why? Because this starts with leaders. You see, if leaders are infected with disappointment, there's no point in them standing on a platform and talking to people about hope. If leaders are infected with anger and frustration, there's no point in them talking about peace and joy and fullness. You see, I used to say this when I was a regional leader, working with leaders all around the nation at some points. I would say, you know, if I come and I speak to you about measles, but I'm infected with mumps, when I leave this room, what will you be carrying? Mumps. You see, what we need to understand that it's not what the leader says that affects people. That can be damaging or it can be glorifying to God. But actually what they carry, their countenance. Their countenance. And their countenance actually is the thing that God uses to minister to his people. People didn't just hang around Jesus because he said great things. People were drawn to Jesus because he carried something. There was something unique, something pure, something special, something wonderful about who Jesus is. And that drew people. Young children don't run towards people who are religious. 
They run towards people who are joyous. Some of us will be quite safe. <laughs> We're never going to be in children's work, that's for sure. <laughs> okay, there was something about the countenance of Jesus. His soul had been conditioned by his father's love. And in every room he stood, in every environment he ever was, two things would happen. Some people would fall in love with him and others wanted to kill him. You see, it's one thing to think that when you carry the presence of God, everyone's going to celebrate that with you. The reality is that Jesus divided every single room he was in. For the broken and the needy and those who were desperate for hope, they loved him. They loved him. These people gave up their lives to follow him. Unreservedly, they left everything behind to seek after him. And yet there are others in the same environment who hated the sight of him. Who wanted him dead. Can you imagine how ridiculously diverse Jesus' conversations must have been with people. But what you carry is what people catch. And all around our world right now, God is lifting, allowing the lid to be lifted. And God is showing us that these great men and women who preach brilliantly and lead gloriously actually have been infected by other things. And that's not God's will to expose his people. It's God's will to heal his people. So you do know, don't you, that leaders are just people. You do know that when you cut them, they bleed. I remember praying for a pastor once and um, we were praying and, and asking the Holy Spirit to heal and to restore. And as I prayed for this man, a man mature, much more mature than I was at that time, I saw all these marks on his back in the spirit. And I said to the Lord, what is that? And at first, my presumption was, and I was about to pray this, but I was stopped by the Holy Spirit. I thought, oh, these are the things that have hit him hard in his life. You know, these are bruises and, uh, that are come as a result of different things in his life. And God said to me, no, that's not what you're seeing. What you're seeing is sheep bites. Because the people in his own congregation seem to take great pleasure in criticizing him. See, people stand in these places week after week after week. And I'd love to tell you that everybody is for what's happening. But that's not the truth. And sometimes when you're a leader, not only are you used of God greatly, but you can be bruised by people. You can be hurt, you can be affected, you can be, you can be criticized and marginalized and, and it's an impossible task sometimes. You know, it's wonderful that we have the church we have, but you know, there are some people who come to me and they say, oh, the worship is too long. Pastor, the worship is too long. Can't you, can't you stop these blessed young people from singing a dance because you are good? I, we want, oh, the other one is, could we have something a little bit more mature. Well, what, what do you mean? How about, um, my shackles are gone. Yeah, that, that's deep. That, that really is a deep theological. Why, why do we have to repeat everything? It goes on. And then, you know, I mean, those conversations, I kind of navigate a little bit. And then some people say, I just think, why are you trying to be funny all the time, Simon? And I just say, because I am. <laughs> because I'd rather have you smile at something I say than fall asleep while I'm saying it. What is it about this that you have to speak endlessly? Do you know why I speak endlessly? Because it takes you 20 minutes to wake up to the reality of what I'm trying to say. It's too lively, it's too quiet. It's too full, it's too empty. It's too long, it's too short. God help us. God help us. You've got to be available 24 hours a day, but be on your face before Jesus in prayer night and day. You've got to know everybody who's sick in the congregation. And at the same time, not be too present that you look like you're interfering. You've got to carry the gifts of discernment and intercession and at the same time 
You need to be at every social event that takes place. I ask you, how is that even possible? And, and I am not talking about myself because I feel like I'm fairly okay. You know, I've been through the mill and back and God has been faithful to me. But the reality is there are men and women in high positions in our, in our world who live very lonely lives, very isolated, sometimes by their own fruitfulness and their own success. And then there are people around them whose only real existence is to benefit themselves by keeping that person consistently believing all of the PR. Do you know at the end of the day, when a man shuts his door or a woman shuts their door and they go home, it's between them and Jesus. And what God says to them is the thing that really matters. The church is full of people who will hype something up or tear something down. That's the truth. And But God is in this business right now in this season of exposing some things. And I pay attention to that. One, I get. Two, seems to be interesting. Three, seems to be an epidemic. What are you doing, God? What are you doing, God, in our world? And I think God is trying to do a couple of things with that. I think the first one is that we need to recognize that the year of the celebrity is over. God is taking back body ministry. There are no experts anymore. Well, there are some, but they are diminishing quickly. Also, there's a generation of generals that are going to be with the Lord. People who made massive impact in our world and they're no longer with us. There's now a new available space in leadership positions throughout the nations for God to raise up some people. But I think what's happening more profoundly is this, that God is raising up a Joshua generation. God is raising up a bunch of people who maybe don't have celebrity status or titles, but they're carrying fire. They're carrying passions. Anybody want to be up for that? They're carrying the presence and the power of God. So let's look at this, and there's a couple of things I want to say to you. I promise you will be done by 1 o'clock. Matthew 25, verse 1. Jesus speaking to this generation about how things will look whenever he comes. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. And verse 13 is the, the kind of coalition of all of these parables. It says, therefore, keep watch. Why don't you say that out loud? Keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Let me talk to you to a couple of things related to that phrase. We'll start at verse 13, keep watch. What does it mean to keep watch? Well, firstly, I think we need attentive hearts. We need a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. Amen? We need to have an internal focus on Jesus Christ. We need to live lives intentionally seeking him and desiring him. We need him to lead us in our day-to-day -day living. I, I love Pentecostal churches. They want the power of God. They want the spirit of God to move. But actually, every time God moves, it's unto something. When he moves in power, he wants to lead us into something. So often people want to be filled with the Spirit, but they don't like being led of the Spirit. And the reason they don't like being led of the Spirit is often that requires sacrifice. They don't mind the blessing, but they don't want the sacrifice. We need not just to be filled with the Holy Spirit, we need to be led by the Holy Spirit. When we're led by the Holy Spirit, we will always be led to life. When we're led by the Holy Spirit, we'll always be led to the kingdom. We'll be led to compassion. We'll be led to mercy. The Holy Spirit always takes us to the realities of Jesus in every context he finds us in. What we're looking for here in this watchfulness internally is a deep connectivity 
to what the Lord is doing currently in our lives. I don't know how you feel about that, but Jesus right now, the great high priest, is praying for specific things before the Father's throne for you. I wonder what they are. And I believe we can eavesdrop on Jesus' prayers. I believe you have been tenderized by the Holy Spirit and you can hear the prayers of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, that kind of praying is really the praying of this hour because we should not be praying from our soulish needs. We should be praying from the revelation we have from Jesus who is praying day and night for the purposes of God to come to pass. I don't know when you last heard him speak, but I want to suggest to you that you really do need to hear him speak. When Jesus speaks, he speaks life. His word does not return void, but accomplishes what he wants it to do. And God is doing something in you right now. He's changing you and transforming you. Somebody say amen to that. There's a fruit of the Spirit that he's specifically working on in your life. There are revelations of his heart and his nature he currently wants to invite you to. Right now, God is at work. And if we don't know what that work is, if we are not sure what he's doing, we will bumble along in our lives and we'll miss some of the great invitations that can only come from the Holy Spirit. If God is praying, if Jesus is praying night and day for you, surely the best thing to pray is what he's praying. You can guarantee then where two or more agree on something that it shall come to pass. One of the things I feel that God is teaching me about is the guarding my heart against cynicism. God is teaching me to be childlike currently. I found myself recently going back to songs that when I first started my journey with Jesus just used to undo me. And here's the, here's the thing, they don't undo me like they used to undo me. A song by Kevin Prosh called So Come, it speaks of the power of the Spirit and the, the last day is coming upon God's people. And you know, when I first heard that song, these are the words, you've taken the precious from the worthless, given us beauty for ashes, joy for pain. You've invited the weary to come to the waters and those who have no money come and buy. And the chorus goes, so come. It's, it's a very simple song. Another phrase is this, behold the days are coming when the plowman shall overturn the reaper. In other words, what God is going to do is so abundant, you will not be able to keep up with the process. Is anybody welcoming that reality? That's from the book of Amos. And when I put it on a few weeks ago, I felt led to put it on. I just felt nothing. I felt numb. And I realized that these songs that used to touch my heart very deeply, I have somehow become a little bit crusty or a little bit hard in regard to them. Now, a song isn't everything, but the, the, the moments of reflection back on what God was doing in my life in those times is still there. It's still there in me. It just needs awakening. I need God to awake that. Do you remember those blessings you had 20 years ago? They produced a spiritual muscle in you. And apparently, if you do exercise and you haven't exercised for a number of years, you have a thing called muscle memory. As you can tell, I have never proved it to be true or otherwise. But the reality is you have spiritual memory. Those wells that God opened up 20 years ago, you can go back and drink from them today. They are as fresh and as real as they were when he first gave them to you. Come on, wake up, church. Those breakthroughs that you had 20 years ago, those encounters where God spoke to you, those times when you had a rhema word from God and it answered and changed everything in your life, they are your places that you can revisit in this hour to get refreshing. There's more water to come from them than you first realized. And as I've listened to this song, God has began to bless my heart and I find myself weeping in his presence. That's what I want and what I desire is that God will not allow me to become, to become cynical. So we're watchful on the inside. We keep our hearts lean and keen with Jesus, pursuing him in purity and in holiness. We give up distractions so that we can acclimatize our soul to how he's moving and what he's saying. But also we need to look around us in the world. It says of the men of Ishaka that they knew the times they were living in and they knew exactly what God wanted them to do. So Jesus is asking us to be watchful. To be hypervigilant, if you like, internally and externally. Uh, I want to ask you a quick question. How watchful are you? On a scale of 1 to 10, 
How watchful are you? How vigilant are you in what God is doing in you and what God is doing around you? These are important questions. I'm asking them on purpose because unless you can find a measure, you don't know what needs to change. My great conviction is that because we have waited so long, we have spiritually become dull. And we can sing all the songs about life we like, but that doesn't give us the life that we want. We can quote scriptures backwards, forwards, up and down, but that doesn't mean they're real to us in our hearts. I am convinced that the church has fallen slightly asleep. I don't know if there's a pandemic or whatever is happening, but you can tell worship for some people now becomes a bit of a chore. You can tell that prayer is something that's, that's awkward or clumsy or difficult for people. And that tells me that some of the things that should be normal about the way we live our lives have become unnormal. We've become a little bit less than we were intended to be. And I, I'm not saying this to judge anyone. I feel I have the same problem. I'm just simply asking questions about it currently. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, at that time, that's this time by the way, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Of course, what Jesus is trying to teach people is not about moral virtue. What he's trying to highlight to the people is there are ten individuals here that have been made pure by the washing of the blood of the Lamb. They have been made righteous and pure by the goodness of God. They've all been given the gift, the gift of that righteousness. And I want to suggest to you that even though all of them are saved and all of them have been made pure, some of them act very differently than the others. The first thing to say about that is they've all got lamps. And when I was praying about this, I realized that the lamps signify something. You carry a lamp to illuminate a way. These lamps were ministries. Ministries that had been given to them by Jesus himself. And while they'd all been made pure and they'd all been made righteous, in many ways they are spiritually virgins, all of them had ministries. All of them had the capacity to influence and impact other people. And I was thinking this through and I realized something that's a bit of an epidemic in the church right now. Everybody is wanting to find their ministry. You know, we, we touch on these things from time to time, but every conference I go to, it seems to be about ministry. What am I called to? Am I apostle? Am I a prophet? Am I evangelist? Am I a teacher? Am I a pastor? And you know, I'm not talking about people in full-time ministry. I'm talking about people generally. Where do I fit into the wonderful body of the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, I want to say this about this statement. Ministry only happens because the one who is the minister lives and works works through you. You do not have a ministry. I get really upset when people say, and my ministry, and my ministry, and my ministry, like somehow you have created all of this. The only thing that you can ever take credit for is your availability and your obedience. It's the one who is the minister that lives inside of you. And I don't mean to cause anyone any havoc here today, but go and read the Old Testament. Sometimes people only had that experience for six weeks. We are obsessed with ministry, and that is the problem in the scripture. Five of them considered intimacy a greater priority than ministry, and the other five considered ministry a greater priority than intimacy. Another thing we learn from this scripture is they all longed to see the bridegroom. We're at a moment in time where God is preparing his bride for the return of Jesus Christ. And you may not have that longing just yet, but I believe it will come. Verse 4, look at verse 4. It says, the foolish ones took their lamps, but they did not take their oil with them. Notice the order in which that took place. They took their lamps and they forgot their oil. Can I just say to you, 
as we move more and more and more towards the return of Jesus Christ, your ministry without the oil of intimacy is not going to hold you safely when Jesus begins to move powerfully. Ministry doesn't cut it when it comes to the things of God. Intimacy is what God values. See, every ministry we have is because he ministers through us. So they took their lamps but did not take oil with one. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. Now what does the oil speak of? It speaks of a tenderness and a heart connection with God. Jesus is saying, I know you say you love me, but you're putting your ministry first and your intimate relationship with me is somehow become second. And in the eyes of God, what does he say about those people? That makes them rendered foolish. It's easy in life to live, I think, sometimes on the fumes of what used to be. I, I've been around this a long time. And when I first came to this church, um, this church, I don't know if you realize this, was birthed out of a move of the Holy Spirit. And a whole bunch of people gathered with a passion for the presence of God. And you know, as the church grew and as the church evolved, some of those people stayed, some of those people went. That's like every church. And I remember sometimes whenever I used to lead worship like the girls were today, all those years ago when I was young and fabulous. Um, <clears throat> I remember looking out whenever we picked an old time song, you know. There was always one or two songs that would uh, move the, the wider congregation. And um, they, they were songs that obviously came out of that season when God was moving powerfully. And um, one of the songs that we were all singing in the world at that time was a song by Darling Check called Shout to the Lord. And you know, by anybody's standards, that is an, an, an international anthem that came at a particular time in the church where God was trying to raise up a, a bunch of people who declared some things. But actually, I'd sit, I'd stand there sometimes leading the worship and, and, and we'd sing these great songs and some of our older people would just be like nonplussed. You know, they'd just be looking, thinking, what is that? You know, a bit like some of you were looking earlier when we were singing that first song. What is that? What, what, is, what is that song? And, 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 of course, then we would move to something like, bind us together, Lord. Oh, hallelujah. <laughs> hallelujah. <laughs> and I used to watch it and think, what is going on? I mean, bind us together, Lord, is three chords. <laughs> if indeed, th two and a half, actually. <laughs> and, and musically, very simple song. And, and suddenly people would start, hallelujah, glory. What is happening is the oil they used to had became a memory in their current reality. Do you hear me? And we've got to be ever so careful that we're not living on fumes from yesterday. Ever so careful that we're not romancing what God did 20 years ago. Ever so careful that we don't fall into the trap of believing that the best days of our lives are somehow in our past. We've got to be really careful. But you know, there's nothing wrong with using that spiritual muscle memory to re-engage with God. But you know... Our young people, our young people in 20 years' time will be singing, <laughs> sing because, and there'll be some other crazy music that's going on, and they'll all be older and more wrinkled and fat. Yes, Jesus. <laughs> no, they just rebuked that. And suddenly they'll be sitting in a congregation and they'll get up and they'll say hallelujah. It's just interesting to watch how we respond to something where we were blessed. And I think it's great having past blessings. But today, today you can have blessings from the Lord. Today you can have oil in your lamp. Today you can experience his presence. Today you can choose Jesus over all the distractions that are happening in your life. And remember... This verse, I think, sums up where I think the church is. Verse 5, it says, The bridegroom was a long time in coming. And look what happened. They all fell asleep. I don't know how many times over the years I've become spiritually drowsy. 
I don't know how many times over the years my hope has faded. My joy seems like a distant memory. The bridegroom seems to be a long time coming. And I'm aware that these thoughts are challenging, but isn't it true to say that if we're honest, maybe the church is less awake than it's ever been. Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, says these words, Awake, awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The church in Ephesus was in revival. (laughs) The church in Ephesus was at the forefront of what God was doing. And Paul writes to them and warns them about becoming spiritually drowsy. He says, awake, awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. You know, when I had a little daughter, she's a big grown woman now, and we used to take her to school, it was my job to get her out of the house. I mean, she still hasn't left, but I'm still working hard at that. (laughs) And um, I'd go and I'd call her from the bottom of the stairs, Emily, Emily, it's time to get up. Uh, be some kind of animalistic noise that would come from somebody who had obviously, you know, been deep in sleep. I come back five minutes later and say, Emily, Emily, we need to go. Are you ready? Yes, Dad, I'm up. And what she meant by that is that she's moved the cover off her body. That's what she means by being up. Ten minutes would pass. I say, Emily, look, we, if you want breakfast, we need to go. We need to go, Em. I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready. And what she meant is she put her one foot on the floor and found her slipper, and she was moving towards the bathroom to engage with cleansing. Cleansing. And five times I used to call her, five times every morning, and I never believed she was out of bed until I saw her at the foot of the stairs. Because at any point it could have meant any of those things. I feel God is at the foot of the stairs. And he's saying, awake, awake, church. And we're saying under the covers of apathy, lethargy, disappointment, disillusionment, I'm up. You're not up until your feet are on the ground. You're not awake until you're engaged with what God is doing. And I believe it's time for the church to arise, to shine. For the light has come and the glory of the Lord is on us. Is there anybody... But we've been waiting, we've been waiting so long that we are all guilty at times from just nodding off spiritually. And then there's this cry, and the cry is, here comes the bridegroom. And I believe prophetically God is going to raise voices now in the nations that will begin to declare the return of Jesus Christ. I think you're going to hear more and more people saying, Christ is coming, Christ is coming, and there's going to be an urgency to the prophetic that hasn't been there for a while. There's going to be an authority to the prophetic that hasn't been there for a while. You see, God's desire is that none of us sleep through his return. And whether you're going to be rudely awakened or graciously awakened is up to you. But you are going to be woken up because your bridegroom is nearer than he's ever been. They woke up and they trimmed their lamps They tried to make ready themselves for the return of the bridegroom. You see, there's an interesting thing here where the ones who have not brought the oil turn to the ones who decided to bring the oil and they say, can I borrow some of yours? Can I say this to you with utter heartfelt love? When Jesus is near You can't borrow somebody else's oil. You cannot live on what God is doing in other people's lives. There is no second-hand investment available to you. When Jesus begins to move towards your life, it doesn't matter how anointed your wife is or how prayerful your spouse is. It doesn't matter how glorious your church is or how wonderfully presence-oriented is your small group If you don't have oil of your own, you will not be able to borrow it from anyone else. You will find yourself lacking. You will find clearly understanding that what you could have had all these years, you have not sought to have. But you may have a great ministry and you may move prophetically and all of those things. They're just gifts. But the intimacy with God, you can't borrow. You can't borrow somebody else's light. You can't borrow somebody else's anointing. Susan Hatton came to our church 
in, in Glasgow once. I don't know if you've heard of Suzette Hatting. She was Reinhard Bonnke's main intercessor, traveled for many, many years with him, a fierce woman of God and, you know, and, and strongly powerful in the things of the Holy Spirit. And she came and she led a couple of meetings for us. And um, I remember standing in line with her as she was praying for people, fantastic outpouring of the Spirit that night. And this lady came up, God bless her, I don't think she was ever the same after this lady. She came up and she said to Suzette, this is what she said, Suzette, would you pray that I get your anointing? And Suzette went, (laughs) it felt like something like that. (laughs) And (laughs) she looked at this woman and she went, my anointing? I thought, oh gosh, this is going to be good. We'll be picking up the pastoral implications of this for 12 years after she's gone. And she said, it has taken me. She sounds like a robot, doesn't she? I need to improve my slightly German anglicized accent. It has taken me 40 years. Sounds Welsh now. 40 years to develop this anointing. And you think you can come to the front of, a, of a, a meeting and receive 40 years worth of oil? You think you can stand here and God will translate the hours of intercession into a moment where you get touched? You see, we are so lazy spiritually. Here's what we do. Rather than cultivate oil ourselves, we wait for an oil carrier to turn up in our midst and we come out and we want hands laid on us. Like you're going to get 40 years worth of, in, of oil in one moment at the beginning or the end of a meeting. Come on church, wake up. How, how have we fallen into that? You see, when he comes, you can't borrow anybody else's oil. It doesn't matter if Reinhard Bonnke prayed for you. And it doesn't matter if your, your missus is an incredible intercessor. Do you have oil? Because that's the thing that you will be able to use to access the presence of God. And of course you know that five of them went in and five of them went away in an emergency state to try and get what they could have got all the years that they'd walked. And I can't believe this sentence because it really, really is not a good thing to hear out loud. But while they were on their way to buy oil, the bridegroom arrived. And the virgins who were ready went in with him to the banquet. And the door was shut. Later, the others also came and they said, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. And he says, and this is the authorized version, depart from me, for I knew you not. In other words, the only thing, the only thing that creates access to his presence is intimacy. Now, I want you to sit with that for a minute because some of us in this room prayed a prayer 30 years ago. Lord Jesus, come into my heart and come into my life. And you think you have a ticket. Jesus did not come to give you a ticket into heaven. Jesus came to give you a relationship with the Father. And if you're relying on your ticket and there's no oil, well, I leave it to you to work out. But it's pretty clear from the scripture that it's not a done deal. That just because these people make some pledge or pray some prayer in relationship to God, that they're going to enter into the celebration of the banquet. It's pretty clear. I am not writing this myself. You read it for yourself. And it doesn't have to be like that. Because God today stands here in this room with a desire and a passion to give you oil. He wants to touch you. And he wants to heal you. And he wants to restore you. And I know some of us, we can testify to being slightly awake or even semi-asleep. It doesn't matter. It's gone past one. I lied to you. I'm sorry. I lied. I lied. I lied. I'm repenting. Will you stand with me, please? I don't want to take you, your time any longer than I need to. Give me oil in my lamp. Keep me burning. Give me oil in my lamp, I pray. 
Give me oil in my lamp, keep me burning. Keep me burning till the break of day. Sing Hosanna. Hosanna to the King of Kings. Sing Hosanna. Sing Hosanna. Lord, we stand before you today and we recognize that we're living in the most incredible times. So much is happening in our world and so many great things are happening in your kingdom. We pray, Lord God, that you would make us hyper-vigilant to the things of your spirit. Would you like to receive from the Lord today the gift of discernment? Lift your hands before him and ask him for that. Lord, help me to receive the gift of discernment that I may know your will and your purposes and the leading of your spirit in this hour. Lord, make my heart sensitive to your voice. Lord, awaken me to the treasure of knowing you. The greatest joy I have is knowing you, Jesus. Not knowing about you, but knowing you, Jesus, to personally walk with you. Make my heart so tender before you, Lord Jesus. May I love you as you love me. Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Create for me a clean heart, Lord. Make my spirit steadfast, Lord, and take not your spirit from me. Lord, I pray that you would restore our first love. I pray, Lord God, that you would do something wonderful in this meeting. It's just a meeting. We're in Birmingham. By anybody's calendar, it's probably not a significant day in the week. But, Lord God, I pray for us it will become a significant moment where you move in power in our lives. Breath of heaven, would you come. Let your ruach breathe upon the embers of our hearts. And, Lord God, would you give for us, give to us what we can't gain by works or human effort. Would you give us the gift of love? Would you give us the gift of delight? Would you give us the gift of passion and purpose and a desire for your presence, Lord God? Keep us hyper-vigilant. Make us watchful. When we hear stuff on the news, Lord, let our hearts not be troubled. Trusting God. Amen. Lord, we know that the enemy is coming in, but we raise up a standard and we say, Hallelujah, our God reigns. And we know that the world is in turmoil, but we know that the kingdom is solid because you are the rock of our salvation. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that while the winds they were around us, we are hidden in the beloved, Lord. We are safe in you, Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to live from that reality in the way we engage with our world and our community. Thank you for washing us clean by your blood, Jesus. For we have all been made righteous in your sight. Someone say hallelujah to that. Though our sins were as scarlet, you have washed us white as snow. Lord Jesus, we are virgin-like before you. We do not want to be defiled by the things of the past or even reminded from where we came. For whom we belong to is far more important than that which we left behind. Lord Jesus, I pray our hearts like like a bride would be so engaged in readiness for you, Lord, that you would make us spotless without blemish or wrinkle. Lord, as we come to this place in history where you are vastly and quickly returning. And Lord, if we prioritize ministry over the oil of intimacy, forgive us. We're so desperate to be somebody. <laughs> so desperate for people to think we are somebody. So easily led by our ego into all kinds of thinking and attitudes and responses. But Lord, the greatest treasure is not that we get to minister. The greatest treasure is that you minister to us, Lord. We thank you, God, that you love us and you're with us and you're for us. And Lord, we thank you that your greatest delight is not what we do on a platform or what we say to another. The greatest delight you have is when we sit and we're with you on our own. That connectivity with you is why you came to this earth. That we should know you and the power of your resurrection. And have fellowship in your sufferings and somehow in that process to become like you. Lord, I pray as a community we prioritize intimacy over all kinds of ministries. And I thank you for the ministries, God. I thank you for the great gifts you've given your people. But those gifts came from you and they point back to you. Every gift we've been given is so that we can celebrate you, Jesus. Not draw attention to ourselves, but lead others towards 
towards you, Jesus. And I pray, Lord God, you would teach us how to do that better and better and better. You are our desire. You are our goal. You are our life. Not ministry, Jesus. Not authority. Not position in the church. You, Jesus, are our everything. You are the light of our world. You are the hope of our hearts. You are the joy that keeps us in the dead of night. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that as we make you our priority, we will have oil. The oil of your presence, your power and your beauty living and abiding in us. Raise up the prophets, God. Get us ready for the return of Jesus. Let the trumpets blast. Let the heralds come, Lord God. Let the voices of those declaring that he is coming begin to rise across the nations, Lord God. And let us not be found asleep. Let us not be found sleeping, Lord. And remind us we can't borrow anything from anyone else. All these years that we've walked with you has been great, great privilege. And Lord, I pray that you would make us the kind of people that are not looking to piggyback of somebody else's anointing. But we carry the anointing of your presence with us. When we walk into the room, may every environment be affected by the countenance of God. When we speak to our friends and our family, let every conversation be fueled by the oil of your presence, Lord. Teach us, Lord, how to value your presence more than performance or indeed ministries. And Lord God, I pray this for myself. Let not the door ever be shut on me, God. As the celebrations commence, I want to be there at the table, sitting, dining with you, enjoying the favor and the blessing of God for eternity. And Lord, I pray that my lack of appetite or lack of intimacy would not disqualify me, Lord God, from being there at that banqueting table. Lord, bless your church as we head into our week. In Jesus' precious name, amen. amen. Have a good week, everybody. God bless you.